Welcome to the Innovation Overground, the front porch of academic innovation, where we try to find some of the coolest university technologies. You don't have to. We want to add to the volume of those innovations and hopefully help them become actual things that people can use and maybe ease some of the problems we're seeing during this COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for joining us. My name is Charlie Litton. I'm joined by Tyler Scher, PhD and science wizard. Hey, Tyler, how's it going? I'm uh, just doing okay here, you know, in quarantine. Um, it's been a it's been a pretty good week for me, at least. How are you doing, Charlie? Not bad, not bad. Like day sixty or something. I think that yeah, was really eight hundred and forty three days ago, though. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And also with us is Joe Rungi, Doctor Lao Daog, an entrepreneur werewolf. Hello, Joe. I think it sounds better if I give it some sort of like you know Kentucky twang to it. I think everything sounds better with Kentucky twang. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. <laughs> Yeah, go for it. Yeah, and actually, speaking of which, I've, I'm just uh, scratching the days on the wall over here, so thanks for reminding me to add another hash mark. But uh, while I'm doing that, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. Please rate and review it. Please tell a friend. Please let us know what are your technology questions in this uh, pandemic moment. What does the university need to do to get us through? Because innovation will always lead the way. Yes, definitely do that. You getting the word out about us helps us get the word out about these these technologies. And and we are focusing a lot on some of the COVID-19 things that we're seeing come out of academia. Um, I think we're going to continue with that idea. Uh, also, I do want to uh, just a fair word of warning to our listeners. We are doing this remotely, and so we're not uh, using the facilities we normally do. So please excuse us if there are weird chimes and bongs or kids come running in crying about a broken arm or whatever it is their little bodies can't handle um so uh, so okay that said i do want to go over some more um some more stuff related to covid19 and um obviously there doesn't seem to be anything else we're talking about but i do have a question tyler i think maybe you're the best person to ask um I, I just, you know, I keep hearing different reports on, you know, it's going to be, you know, six months before we see a vaccine. Oh, no, no, no. It's going to be 18 months. And then I'm hearing, oh, no, no, it's going to be two years. Like, what is, can you help me understand why it takes so long to develop a vaccine? I get it might take time to, to you know, to scale it up and get it around to the billions of people around the world. But why does it take so long just to get the darn thing working? Yeah, that is a, that's a great question, Charlie. Um, yeah, so I mean, part of the reason for the window here is because we are we're we're using a whole new approach to creating vaccines, and we're trying to rapidly accelerate the process. And I'll get to that in a second. So, traditionally, um, the the traditional vaccine approach. Well, I mean, if you want to get really traditional, it was you know the first the um, discoverers of a. Uh, vaccines, so to speak, uh, were, were, you know, scientists who, who basically just collected uh, pus from a wound and, you know, and <laughs> well, like smallpox or something like that. Yeah, we're talking smallpox and cowpox. And I, there's, there's even, you know, uh, recorded reports of that same sort of approach um, being done you know, in, 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 in other countries, even earlier than that, even earlier than the 1700s, right? So but that was, yeah, that was basically the, the approach was um, take, take the whatever symptom, um, you know, that's on the surface on someone's skin, you know, poke it up and take some of it and shove it inside someone else's arm and hope, and hope <laughs> it helps. Um, Not spill it. 
<laughs> what, what could go wrong? All right. Yeah. That, that is that is real. That is having that is having skin in the game, literally, and that science oh. experiment. <laughs> but you know, we've we've uh, thankfully progressed from there. Now that we have a, a better understanding of, of microbes and viruses and bacteria, um, and uh, but but still the process, the, the the more traditional, you know, actual FDA approved process, um, still involves growing up whole cells. Um, so you still have to grow up your your virus. Uh, you have to grow it in bulk. Um, you have to how, do all sorts of testing, as you can imagine. Along how long does it take to how long does it take to grow virus in bulk? Yeah, and you know we can do that. You can grow up viruses pretty quickly, actually, just in basically you know the equivalent of like a large fermenting chamber. Um, so it doesn't take you know super long to do. That's not actually the the the, the time consuming and really costly part is having to go through all of the all of the the, the necessary steps to ensure safety, right? I mean, for 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 a, a, a typical therapy. You have to prove, you know, that it's it's the you you have to basically pass the Hippocratic oath, right? At first, you're not doing any harm, um, and, and then you have to show that okay, if it's safe, if it's not harming, then then it's effective. Well, for I mean, a vaccine, we're talking about, you know, someone you're you're giving it to someone who's not sick yet, so there's even a more, even a more stringent um, amount of work that has to be done to you know definitely ensure that you're not giving them something and making them sick. Because you're again, and you know, it's it's a it's a uh, prophylactic. You know, it's it's a preventative, yeah. right? So, so you know, I'll just throw a couple of things at you here. Less than ten percent of vaccine candidates actually have made it through the process um, in in the U.S., and it takes on average about ten years to do this kind of whole cell approach. Wow. Um, um, and so, so, so that is again, that's now using that that's growing up and using whole cells. These may be um, live attenuated viruses and that would mean that they're not as they're not fully armed or fully equipped so they 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 have you know enough that they're expressing on their surface to be able to educate your immune system to to recognize their their more deadly cousins uh, but they're not actually going to be able to cause full disease on their own they they might give you a little bit of a fever right um not going to be able to cause the disease itself, and some of that could be the the adjuvants that we include as well in those in those uh, vaccinations to help really help help your immune system um, focus. Uh, but you said uh, adjuvant. What's an adjuvant? Yeah. Um, so what I mean, an adjuvant? I've actually never really known what it means. So thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that's just uh, it's. I think it's loosely can be defined as anything that that actually elicits an immune response. So. Um, so these get added, you know, to vaccines that, that they could be um, uh, non-biologics um, like inorganic compounds or uh, mineral oils. Um, and the, the, but, but they could also be, uh, you know, components of, of our immune system. Um, and so these are just anything that get added along with the, the, the vaccine to, to really um, to, to kind of hold up a huge alarm, sound the alarm, raise a big flag, so your immune system pays attention. Okay, so the adjuvant is a big klaxon alarm there that, that calls the uh, the immune response to whatever viral agent is in the vaccine. Yeah. Yep. That's ideally that's what it would do. Okay. Yep. Um, and so, so I started off there with the the whole cells. Um, um, uh, so there's two other approaches that we that can accelerate the process of, of creating vaccines. 
Uh, Joe, did you want to talk about one of them, or do you want me to keep going? I don't want to. I don't want to. Let's keep going, man. You're killing it. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks, Joe. You know, feel feel free to chime in if you have something to add. Um, so the whole sell approach would be step one. You know, that's that's kind of our initial approach. The that's where it all began, right? That goes back yeah. to like the milkmaids or something getting cowpox, right? Yeah, with 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 Edward Jenner. Yep, and yeah. using cowpox to to inoculate and, and provide um, some sort of protection against smallpox. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. So so you know, one step. Yeah, exactly. 2.0 would be a little more elegant, and that is, you know, with with a better understanding of what's what's actually happening inside the body. Um, th there was the recognition that that you know, really, you don't need the whole cell. The important part is just whatever um, proteins are being expressed that that are on the surface of the virus that that are being recognized by the immune response. And so, so 2.0 would just be using uh, a, a peptide-based um, antigen approach and we actually have a technology that's available for licensing at UNMC. Um, here you can find it on our Unimed webpage. We'll share a link to that uh, with, with this strategy. So it uses this, and it's, this is still also a relatively newer strategy. Um, and these researchers have developed, you know, a, 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 a modular system here to be able to basically, um, you know, uh, rapidly produce um, a, a, a panel of, of possible, peptide antigens that could then be tested and, and, and hopefully some of them would be shown to be um, effective as, as, a, as a vaccine substance. Hey, Tyler, I've always yeah. been interested in kind of that process for creating those. Is that an immuno, is that, I, I don't know where I would put it, is that an immunologically driven process to create those peptides or are they sort of synthesizing those peptides based on homology to known immunostimulating molecules? Yeah, I think both approaches. Okay. You've, outlined, you've outlined both uh, pretty nicely there. And I don't know for sure which one these researchers have, have taken here. Um, but yeah, uh, both have their, their pros and cons, right? So you can either start from something from that's, that's well documented or identified, or you can kind of just, just um, synthesize um, kind of mad scientist style and, and throw a whole lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. So um, when they're doing those sort of synthesis projects, how big are those peptides? Are they, you know, gigantic? Or are they, you know, just a couple of residues? Or, are they, or does it vary substantially? Also a very good question. Um, I don't believe antigens are overly large peptide sequences, um, although I, I think they can vary, again, depending on, on, on the pathogen of interest. So... Um, you could imagine, you know, if you're creating a vaccine for a really small virus, you probably have a smaller um, antigen than if you're creating a vaccine for a, a much larger bacteria, for example. Cool. Right. So what's uh, what's next then? If um, if those are if peptides or, or proteins is the 2.0, is there a 3.0? Yeah. So we're what we're doing here is we're just going reverse order of the central dogma of biology, right? So. DNA to RNA to, to protein okay. to then, you know, whole cells. Um, and we're just going in reverse. So yeah, so that, that 3.0 um, scientists, again, just going in reverse, theorized that, you, you know, let's look here. And so, so they actually- Sorry, Tyler, you, you cut out on my end. I don't know if the listeners can hear it. Can you repeat that? You said uh, researchers thought what? 
Yeah, sorry. So, so scientists thought, um, yeah, let's just cut out the middleman and go straight to the source. And so they've identified, um, you know, the actual genetic sequences, whether, whether it's DNA or in the case of, of RNA viruses, RNA, um, that actually are used to then produce those antigenic proteins on the, on the surface, those protein markers or antigen markers that your immune system is going to recognize. And with, with the gene therapy, or not gene therapy, sorry, the, the, the gene-based vaccine approach, um, you're now just basically, uh, you're, you're training cells to actually produce then those proteins in your body. So you're, uh, actually your cells will produce those proteins that then your immune system can recognize um, uh, so, so again, it really is like cutting out the middleman. Uh, these, the, the uh, nucleotides can be synthesized more cheaply and more rapidly than, than peptides even. Um, you can, again, you can just use something like PCR to create large quantities of, of, of the nucleotides. So is anybody out there working on this particular approach right now that we can talk about? Yeah, so in terms of COVID, the, there are 94, as of a week ago, 94 vaccine candidates in preclinical studies just for COVID. Okay. Um, uh, there, are, there are, let's see, um, three, three uh, let's see, there's, there's, a, there, there's a subset of those that have made it on to, to, to phase one or phase two trials. There's, there's eight that have made it on to phase one or phase two. Three of those are, 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 are the, the traditional, the whole cell, the inactivated or killed virus approach, um, which, which again will probably take years. Uh, but this is this is this is this awesome example of again science kind of you you're, with with these different approaches, you're able to basically place different bets, right, and kind of edge. Yeah. So we we have some labs who are taking or, or some companies uh, that are taking years and you know kind of doing the the long road here. Um, but then we have others that are trying to speed it up and if it works great, but if not, we can fall back on these, these, you know, our, our, our more tried and true sure. method. That's um, great. So, so there's, yeah, so there's uh, there's three vaccines that are in phase one or two clinical trial um, that are doing the, the gene based approach that I'm aware of. Uh, let's see. Um, one is from a, a German company called BioNTech. Um, but the one that I'm really interested in is a, a U.S. based company called Moderna and Mo Moderna made headlines not that long ago. You know, I, it seems like yesterday, it was probably six weeks ago already, but, but they, they, um, were, were, were the quickest to conceive of a, a vaccine and get FDA approval for clinical trials. It took like two weeks is all for them to, 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 to go from nothing oh, to suddenly yeah. having FDA approval. What was the yep. vaccine for? For COVID. Yeah, that was the guy that was at Trump's meeting, and they were all, like, one-upping each other. And then that guy, like, you know, put his cards on the table, and I was like, oh, snap. Wow. <laughs> so, so, wait, so if he's got something – so is it in trials now? Is that is that what's going on? This is a, It's an RNA-based um, clinical trial or, or vaccine. Sorry. Yeah, it's in phase – I think it might have just moved into phase two. I, think, I thought I saw today that it moved from phase one to phase two trials. Help help me remember. Now, phase one tests efficacy? No, phase one, one safety. Yeah, I'll let Joe take that. Sorry, Joe. What's that? Phase, phase one tests safety. So, Make sure you don't kill people, right? Right. And it's usually healthy people who are not sick, and you okay. give them all this. So you just get it, make sure they don't die or get, you know, like, you know, a third eye growing out of the middle of their forehead. And then, unless that's the purpose, because <laughs> I could use a third eye. Um, so, a third Kentucky eye. 
So phase two then tests efficacy? Yes, phase two is an initial well, efficacy test, and then phase three is where things go to die because that's where you have to demonstrate a small efficacy test on a really broad base, and that's where you get the hell of human variability in testing drugs. Right, okay, so like, yeah, so like phase two, it could be a, a relatively small study, correct, where you can just test like 100 patients, say, and it shows like it works, but it's they happen to be all like middle-aged white Nebraskans, and then right. when you go to phase three, you go to the whole population, and that's where it falls apart sometimes. Start working with Kansans, and it's just totally different. Yeah, okay. yeah, okay. the uh, yeah, middle-aged Iowans, and then, yeah, next okay. thing you know, Everybody wants to eat butter. Okay, so, um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the joke about the Iowa State Fair there. I sorry. had a very funny laugh there that was covered by my strategic meeting. Ah, okay. Well, that doesn't help me. I need to hear laugh. That's how I get my validation. So I think we denied, you know, our audience that great laugh. <laughs> That's so, true. So the other benefit of sorry, the, <laughs> Tyler's on task. <laughs> uh, yep, I'm, I'm just I'm just totally ignoring you guys. Thank um, you, <laughs> thank you for ending that. All right, so go ahead. So not Tom. only not, not only was was the development, you know, um, orders of magnitude quicker in being able to to uh, synthesize relevant. Um, nucleotide sequences and then get it and then get it approved for for trials but but on the back end if if these are shown to be effective um these vaccines would theoretically be you know more shelf stable than than conventional vaccines um they're, they're not that you'd, you'd be able to grow them up very quickly um so if something like this could be used for the flu for example we could be producing multiple batches of different vaccines in one single flu season you know based on real-time reporting um these, these don't need to grow up in, in chicken eggs, <laughs> right. um, you know, so. You're going from basically a farmed product to a factory product with all the, yeah. and, you know. That's a very good analogy, yeah. That, that's a huge difference, and it would really, it would fundamentally change how vaccines are administered because instead of guessing what flu is going to be in a couple months, you look at what flu is, you dial up your vaccine-o-matic, and boom. Yeah, that's been the big problem with the flu vaccine right you try to they try to make a guess on how it's going to evolve six months later or you know when the next pandemic emerges from someplace in the world yeah you know you, the minute it's characterized by robotic CRISPR drones or whatever then you know you can you, you can automate the whole vaccine process and put it and spray it in the air or whatever so yeah so Joe, Joe makes an interesting point there. He brings up CRISPR again. I know last episode we talked about a CRISPR could be used in the diagnostic side of things. Could CRISPR play a role in the vaccine side of things, Tyler? Oh, you know, um, if CRISPR played a role in this process, it would be earlier on. What CRISPR is good at yeah. is finding things within the genome. And okay. so the reason it's yeah. good for diagnostic is that it's like a super precise DNA seeker. Because it's, you know, got, that's what it does, right? And so, you know, if, in our future hyper-efficient uh, vaccine dreamland, you would have CRISPR-based analysis what that would determine what the structure of the, the virus actually is, which would then feed into your automated vaccine production. So that's how yeah. you can go from discovery to rapid vaccine production. Yeah, I, I suppose one example, you know, again, with... Thinking back to that last episode where we talked about um, George Church's startup for uh, environmental surveillance, I suppose you could theoretically have, uh, you know, different CRISPRs surveying for different um, antigens or, or sequences 
uh, rather. And then, you know, whichever one uh, you could actually sort of, you know, see which one was collected or, or read in the highest abundance and maybe infer, maybe infer that that would be a better uh, possible candidate for a vaccine then. That's true because there's not every virus is the same, right? And so you want a vaccine that's specific enough to that class of virus, but not so specific to that individual. And so in that sense, yeah, that's a good point. You could use CRISPR to do precise genome investigation on the virus and then ultimately, you know, make sure that you've got a segment that's not too variable, but not too conserved. So it's, you know, adequate for that specific virus, but not so adequate for that individual virus. Am I reciting? What yeah, you're... exactly. You just did a better job of explaining what I was trying to explain. Thank you. <laughs> All the benefit of hearing you say it. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, I think it's time to come to ground on this one, unless there's more to add, Tyler. Uh, no, I don't have, no, I don't, I don't have anything else to add really. I mean, we, we have some universities doing this as well. I should have mentioned um, University of Pennsylvania is also working on a, a, a gene-based COVID vaccine as well. So stay we'll tuned. Sure. There's a lot of smart people working on this we, uh, with, within industry and academia. We'll make sure to include a link in the program notes, both to the UPenn, the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and some of the very innovative companies that are really hoping to provide 21st century solutions to getting immunity to these horrible pandemics. Okay. I also want to thank our sponsors, Unimed, the Technology Transfer and Commercialization Office at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and University of Nebraska at Omaha. Also, KVNO Recording Studios, which usually lets us use their space, but under current circumstances, it's not possible. Um, and also, Unitech, the translational widget. <laughs> startup incubator for the University of Nebraska Medical Center and University of Nebraska Omaha. Hey, Rob. Hey. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and so for Tyler Sherry, Joe Rungi, I'm Charlie Litton saying thank you and join us every Monday on Unimed's Innovation Overground.